Coming up on the Front Page Football Podcast, Cody Ajada and Matt Olsen are back, wrapping up the third week of the FIFA Women's World Cup, looking ahead to the quarterfinals and a particularly big one tomorrow, the Matildas taking on France in Brisbane in the quarterfinal. Probably one of the biggest games um, for... <laughs> For our national teams, it's, it's just, yeah, it's a monumental moment. And, um, there's, yeah, just going to be so much hype around it. Um, come tomorrow, so many eyeballs on it. And hopefully the Matildas can do the nation, uh, proud. But without further ado, that's enough from me. Cody and Matt are on right after this. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Front Page Football Podcast, another World Cup special of the Front Page Football Podcast. It is your favorite duo, Cody Ojeda, Matt Olsen. Matt, I've got a question for you quite early before we work out how your day is going. Is this World Cup cutting through to you? Because I, I don't know if it is. Cutting through to me? What do you, what do you mean? Surely, surely you've seen the, surely you've seen the memes, man. Come on. You, you, you're no. on Twitter, mate. You know what's going on. Surely you saw this. I, I did. Oh I'm, I'm too busy. So you missed the ABC journal that said that she doesn't believe this World Cup is cutting through. No. Oh my god, no. Matt. Have you been under a um, rock, mate? I haven't I haven't opened my phone in in literally like two two straight days of uh you know oh, my day job, Matt, the FA Matt, Cup. Matt, you're missing out. Back to hours, you know, it's 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 look, it's a grind, but with this World Cup stuff, uh, as I said, and I told you this off air, I'm catching up with all of the content as we go along. I've obviously got, got a piece coming out tomorrow as well, tomorrow Friday, of course. Um, so today, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, as we as we sort of um, get go on this go on this journey, there are going to be some some pretty bad takes from literally everyone in every direction involved in sport, especially. So not not surprised to hear that that someone from the ABC has had a bad take on the situation. Yeah, it sounds like it's not someone. Um, within football, someone I've never heard of before. I'm not going to name the name, mainly because everyone knows who it is anyway. Everyone knows who I'm talking about. And frankly, I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. If this World Cup isn't cutting through to you, you are simply not paying attention. But we're here to talk about the World Cup, and I'm sure this is an example of it cutting through because, you know, if you're this is the first type of um front page football podcast you've listened to, hopefully you've enjoyed it. Hopefully you enjoy my hosting. I know me and Christian like to have a few back and forths about that, but we'll get into it. We'll start off with our Matildas watch, and what a great way to start off. Round of 16, 2-0 win over Denmark. The um Swedes, we'll get into the Swedes a bit later, but I'm sure they're going to be happy. They go through there. Old foe goes out. But Matt, what was your take on the game? Well, firstly, just talking about cutting through. I, the, the legacy of the match, if you can if you can say that, is absolutely the fact that more people watched it than watched the AFL and NRL Grand Finals. In a men's competition, in the elite sport, the uh, the most elite sporting event on the Australian calendar, that is that that's cutting through. You kidding me? <laughs> anyway, what's the thing about it? like that's that's big big numbers. You're talking what was it a high point of six point five million? Yeah, we're talking like fifteen twenty percent of the entire Australian population yeah, watching that game. That's nuts. And for you know, like we're not here to put it down, but like that for women's football, that's unprecedented and i think mm. even leading into this world cup we knew it would be big but that big 
So yeah. off the field, this, it's killing it. And the Matildas on the field, you know, we had that scare against Nigeria, which we've already very duly spoken about, but the Matildas are doing the justice on the field too. Hundred percent, hundred percent. It's it's so good to to see this from from football. Um, this is the the Johnny Warren I told you so moment, and it's even crazier when you factor in that it's it's not the Socceroos. It is in fact the Matildas that are doing this and uniting the country. Oh, that's um, that's what the fo- that's what the football world does, I guess. I, I remember I had a chat with someone. I can't remember who it was exactly now, and I'm going to quote them. And I do apologize for not being able to say who it was, but whoever it was. Once you listen to my beautiful voice, you can tell me that it was indeed you that told me. There's two sports that, there's two sporting events that unite the world and unite Australia in the, in a unique way. And that's the Olympics. And that is the World Cup. Usually we say it in the, in the terms of the men's World Cup, but we're seeing the women's World Cup really follow through that process. Let's get, re- let's just pro- try and get into the game properly as well, because there's so much going off the field and so many records being broken, attendances, viewers. We, we already know the Matildas are massive. But on the field, it, I don't know if you'd say it was the cleanest performance. It was, it was a good performance. We, I don't know if you'd say we dominated, maybe sat on the back foot a little bit. We looked well while we were on the ball, but this, um, transition game that Tony's gone into, it's looking like it's really working for us. And look, those first two games where we looked like we were struggling a little bit, they were the type of games that we knew we were going to go in and dominate, I guess. So seeing that kind of change now and going, okay, yeah, we're playing against the bigger sides. We're not seeing as much of the ball, but we almost look better for it. Matt, what's your take on that? Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting because I think until the actual lead was taken in the match, until the ball from Fowler that we all obsessed over to what, Razzo, what a ball that uh, sorry, was. To Razzo to Ford happens. Yeah. Um, you know, it was almost as though Denmark had actually really been the, the better side. And I think the transition and the sort of, uh, you know, letting teams come to us in a way is a really, really interesting thing that uh, it's hard to really appreciate it until you see it come to fruition in the way that it did in that game. And that's a very unique thing about Tony G's football. And it's a very unique f- way in which the Matildas have had a lot of their success. And I, I think that, that that was um, embodied a lot by comparing the game in Viborg that I spoke a lot prior to the match, comparing it to the game that there, therefore happened in Sydney in the round of 16, the Matildas control on the game. It was a completely unique scenario of Denmark came at them quick. They scored within 47 seconds in Viborg. They threatened to score within the first 10 minutes in Sydney. And it's just very unique in that, in that both games ended with Australia really, you know, quite easily and, and not routinely. Let's not, let's not go that far, but pretty easily beating Denmark in a way. Um, and a lot of that comes from the style of football that is employed by Tony Gustafsson. It's such a unique, uh, unique uh, sort of um, anomaly on on the way that they're playing. I think. I think routinely is the best word. I, I did say, well, look, it probably wasn't a standout five star performance or anything like that. It was a good performance. I don't. I don't think you can sit there and look at it and say it was bad. Yeah, we're on the back foot a lot, but it almost seemed like it was by design. I guess I think that's probably the best way to put it. You know, Denmark. They did look like they wanted to have the ball in that game. They wanted to get Pernil harder on the ball as much as they could. The Matildas were able to kind of let him go. Let him have it. Let him play it around. Let Pernil Harder come to us because you have someone like Claire Hunt who's in the form of her young career. And that's also something that's probably unprecedented. We'll get to that in a minute. But let's stay on the system a little bit because, you know, I know you kind of went into the deeper side in the tactics in our last episode. And the way we came into this, obviously, um, Tony's been preferring a 4-4-2 throughout this tournament. 
and coming into this game, it looked like it really did look like Mary Fowler was dropping a little bit deeper. I know she's done that different occasions under Tony Gustafsson. She's kind of played that 10 role a lot, but it did feel like that was a small adjustment made to the um Canada game. I thought she was pushing a bit further forward in that match, whereas now she was the one that was kind of dropping into those deeper spaces. How important was that adjustment to you, considering you are a lot more knowledgeable about Denmark than what I am? Yeah. So, I mean, a big part of the reason why Denmark were able to control the proceedings early on as well, um, from their own perspective, I don't think it actually had anything to do with tactically the approach that Matildas themselves made. I'll tell you what actually made the biggest difference is the uh, Matildas, Denmark themselves, um, reverted to a 4-4-2, which they hadn't been playing throughout the tournament. And that actually probably really did change things up. And it actually really did help increase the input, um, more so of someone like a Pernil Harder, where she's playing centrally and, 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 you know, the input from, uh, from the players on either side has, has, has been a bit of a problem. And there's been a lot of rotating and Harder herself has dropped out into white positions and, and everything like that is going on. The 4-4-2, where you just have Vanksgaard, who's been the best attacking player for Denmark, just alongside Harder, they came out firing and, they could have easily scored in, in, in the early preceding uh, sort of minutes of the game, I think, because they, with the way that they'd set up and the way that they were looking to set up, it was it was something different, and it definitely caught Australia by surprise. Um, the issue on that was that, you know, as we've, as we've sort of just said, that the counter-attacking style um, that they can really nail at times um, was, was, you know, executed really well to the point where the game fell apart from Denmark from the fact that they weren't able to score in those in those earlier periods of the game and the effect of the switch that was made tactically um, from from Sundergaard was was lost, you know, before halftime, and that's a big problem. It's interesting, actually, because let's just say Denmark do get a couple of those early chances. Do you see Matilda's getting back into the game? Yes, yes, because there's no way that Denmark could have held out the intensity and the pressure of how they'd been attacking for for ninety minutes. But even um, if, let's just say. They're, they're trying, well, Denmark could obviously try and pay, play that intense game. But yeah. if they go 1 0 up early, do mm. the Matil- do they just sit back and kind of hold that lead and let the Matildas come at them? Do they kind of swap the roles around and let the Matildas have the ball where we know we, we kind of struggle with it sometimes? It, look, in the times that they did held, hold a lead um, in the tournament, you, you'd have to take the China game out of that because they held the lead for like a minute and nothing really happened, right? Uh, in the Haiti game, I don't know. I, I feel like they were still sort of trying to go forward. And in the case of, of a Matildas game where they take that one new lead, they definitely would have uh, sort of seen the opportunity to pounce on the fact that Australia were a little bit startled by how they were setting up tactically. And ultimately, Cody, I don't really know how much that conversation really goes on to, to anything substantive, given it's simply not what happened in the match. So It's the curious thing to think about. It's like kind of like a, a what-if situation, I guess, which, yeah, 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 you know, like sure. obviously don't want to focus on the what-ifs. And Matilda's one at the end of the day. We're all happy, unless you're Danish. Sorry, Matt, I forgot you kind of are. But... <laughs> No, but look, it, it's 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 an interesting thing to think about because Denmark, at the end of the day, did have that ascendancy in those early stages of the game. They score mm. early. Do the Matildas get back into the game? I know the Matildas did beat look, them look, coming from behind the last time uh, they played. Let me let me let me let me let me just say this. So, so I think the England game is a really good example here of how when they're under that pressure and they counterattack in a good way, they can really just sort of take control of a game without statistically going forward, advancing, you know, being in charge um, with a lot of, of, of that attacking mindset. And if you put themselves 
in a scenario where they're where they're nil one down in front of that crowd for that game with that much meaning on the line, and um, you know Denmark do continue to go forward. I think that the, all they're going to want to really do is is sit back a bit and try and find those lanes where they can create a little bit more, like the Fowler pass. And I think they're still going to execute that to the best of their ability, um, because you almost end up having a simulation under that pressure of what it was like to play England in England when when they won. Do you, do you know what I'm getting at? No, I, I don't understand a little bit, but I, I, if, if we'll probably move on from this because, like I said, it it's isn't. Not, it is. It's not a great conversation. <laughs> no, I'm just. I was curious about. It. I didn't think we were going to go that in depth. I, I, I meant it just as kind of like a simple question. Didn't realize we were going to keep going about it, but because there is one other aspect I want to talk about of this game, another headline that kind of came out of it, and that was obviously the return of Sam Kerr. Obviously, we need to touch on it. Nation's captain, star girl. Oh, the poster girl for this whole tournament, not even just for the nice Matildas, team. finally makes her return from injury. She comes on, I believe she came on when it was 2-0. Can't remember off the top of my head. But put yourself in Tony's shoes. We obviously have the rest of the tournament going on and you've got to find a balance between, yeah, she doesn't need match minutes in the legs and she's coming back from injury. Do we risk her when she's winning? Do you think it was the right choice to actually play her in that match or bring her on at the time that they did? Look, I, I recall saying to a few people who know that I, you know, do do stuff in soccer and they just wanted my opinion um, as people that were casual followers. A lot of people sort of asked me, like, when, when's Sam coming? And, and my instinctive response was to say, well, look, she'll come on when they need her. But actually, the inverse was true. When the inverse happened, she was able to be given a free reign to play 10 minutes of football or 15 minutes or however long it was with no pressure at all. And that can only sort of help. I I think the situation was uh, was pretty well done from from Tony and from uh, you know the medical staff and whoever else you know played their part to get Sam Sam on that pitch at, at that time. Um, she's ended up having a slip and it looked weirdly kind of painful, especially on the calf there. And she did a big grunt and you know we can we can laugh about it now because we know she's she should be okay, right? But um, other than that, she just she just got some minutes in the legs, and she got to sort of have a moment where she she came on, and everyone went crazy, and you know that that poster girl moment for the tournament that was needed, right? So it's a net positive from my end, and I think it's exactly what she would have needed to play just that tiny little bit of intensity before working up to match fitness. I think I think that's um, yeah. I was going to say because if we need her later in the tournaments, and let's just say we don't use her in this game, we go to, we go on France next. We're 1-0 down the 80th minute. We're bringing her on, and that's her first minutes at all. You look at her in that Denmark game, let's be honest, she did still look a bit ginger. She didn't look completely sharp. She, it, she, it, wasn't, it wasn't Sam Kerr at her best. So having her kind of go through that, go through the motions, like you said, in a low-risk environment, when she came on, I'll be honest, I was sitting there thinking, do we really need to bring her on right now? We're winning. Let's just hold out the game. Why are we bringing on a striker, especially when she's still coming back from injury? What if she aggravates it? That was what went through my head. I like your explanation. I'll be honest. I'll give you a compliment. You've kind of convinced me. So probably the best thing I can say before you on this podcast. Um, I know you're not saying anything, but I can see you smiling, and I want to make sure the listeners are knowing that too. So I don't look stupid just talking like this. <laughs> no, no, I'm just I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say much more. You know, thank no, you. But... You acknowledged I hit the nail on the head, but that's that's all right. I mean, like 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 when you when you really break it down and think about it, what I just said makes perfect sense, right? Um. She doesn't. She she shouldn't be coming in in an intense scenario. No one in that situation where they're your most important player should be coming on, right? Okay. You, you well, I'm gonna throw with that that match that match sort of intensity 
to be more in line with your fitness. A game where you're 2-0 down and the pressure's not really on, as much as Denmark were obviously going up 100%. You mean 2-0 up, sorry? Yeah, sorry. 2-0 <laughs> <Two nil> up. <laughs> oh, well, look, let me, let, me, let, me, let me throw another what if to you. If we were down 2-0 in that game, or we were down 1-0, do you throw Sankur on? Well, yeah, you would have still needed to, especially and Eventually. For, the metrics, more than, for, the, for, for the metrics more than anything. And look, obviously, she, you know, if she plays very similar and has that slip and we're losing the game, oh, dear. Oh, dear. But, yeah, it's not what happened. <laughs> so, who cares? All right, well, look, one thing, one other thing on that game, any individual impo- uh, performances that impressed you, obviously, Hayley Rice has been one of our better players this tournament. That's something we could talk about all day. Claire Hunt's really come into her own. Um, there was a stage... She kind of got the ball with Denmark striker pressing. I can't remember if it was Penil Harder or one of the others. But she kind of let that player come to her almost within a metre of her before she played the pass back to Arnold. And there was just this collective gasp that went around the stadium because this girl's tried to cut off the pass. Hunt's made that pass anyway. Pulled it off, though, mind you, very expertly. Mm-hmm. Everyone around the stadium had this collective gasp. You could almost hear it through the TV. I don't know if you did. The two people that I was with did the same thing. They were like, oh, my God, what's she doing? Once she's played the pass and we've moved the ball out, I turned around to him. I was like, notice how I didn't react because I had that much faith in her that she was able to pull it off. And it was quite spectacular watching it. And I know you know exactly what I'm talking about because I can see your reaction to this. But we've got a centre-back now who's that comfortable with the ball at her feet that no matter what situation she's in, I've got faith that she's going to get herself out of it. And that yeah. is quite special. It's even more special that this is an A-League player we're talking about. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, if, if Claire Hunt is your girl, knowing you're knowing the background about her that you do, um, I'd say in a similar vein, because I've already praised her on this podcast before, I think the input of Emily Van Egmond is still very, very impressive. To have a midfielder playing out of possession, and especially the assist for the second one, right, where she takes that touch and she just rolls the ball out, out for Razzo, it's a minuscule example, but it's an important one. Very selfless that's, as well. That's the advantage of a midfielder playing in an attacking position is that they're not going to be selfish and do something stupid. They're going to play the ball out in the right positions. They're going to have the mindset and the vision as well. The vision when you're pressing as well. Van Egmond play as a forward. There's been a lot of little tweaks like that where you've actually really needed that presence and that mindset where you're not all about attacking and going forward. Ironically enough, in the position where you are attacking and going forward. And it's I think it's been an asset in ways that we haven't really predicted or expected um and of course you know it's always been good um to see caitlin ford finally get on the score sheet i don't believe that it's a coincidence that in the same way that denmark tweaked the way that they were playing to start with the matildas caitlin ford has had an impact because when you look back to the last time they played caitlin ford scored a brace in five ball and she scored against denmark in sydney <laughs> i think there's i think there's method in the madness there in, in the way that that was sort of castrated for a lot of those counters and a lot of that pressing and a lot of the areas where the ball are going to be suited to caitlin ford because there's something about the way that she's able to break through the danish defense also with her quarters also being back in her natural position not playing up front partnered up with someone that probably doesn't uh complement her skill set yeah. having her in a natural position much much better for it and now we've got two people playing up front, or I know Mary Fowler's kind of dropping back in. It's funny because if you said we have a front two of Mary Fowler and Van Egmont, and one was dropping deep to play as a 10, you'd probably think that was going to be Van Egmont, but it's been, <laughs> it's, been, it's been Fowler doing that role. And I think that's someone else that deserves yeah. praise because you mentioned her assist before, but so many things that we do going forward go through her, and she's showing a level of technical ability that anyone that's watching the Matildas, I guess, knew she had. She's obviously been one of the bigger names being so young, 
so much potential, but this tournament, she's really come into her own, shown what she can do at an international level. And it'll be interesting mm. to see when she goes back to Clubland, when she goes back to Man City, if well, she's just able to on that. Hey, that is that is Man City level footy brain, and we're seeing it first and foremost. The vision on that past, you you learn that playing for a club like Manchester City with with the at that level ability. at least, yeah, 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 hundred percent. So I th- I think I think Mary Fowler is only going to grow and grow as an asset and be the next be the next really big star if she's playing in England and and getting a lot of that. I mean, we've already got the added asset with her. A few posters around. I, I, I definitely saw some in Melbourne, and I'm definitely looking to see. When she's we get, when up we... on a massive billboard in Sydney. Well, not even yeah. a billboard. She's on the side of a building now. Yeah. It doesn't get much bigger than <laughs> That's that. That's right. That's right. No, and when we go to Brisbane, Cody, when, when you and I are walking around Brisbane, I hope we see these little things around the city. Um, these just these these homages to our Matildas, because a lot of them, you know, the sacrifices that they've made in the career, the significance of their celebrity and their star and who they are. It's a really big deal. But also, just, just from a football perspective, Mary Fowler has learned a lot. She's a very intelligent footballer, and we saw that firsthand. So her pressing back and her ability to just read that, control a lot of that play, it's a massive asset. It's something that, yeah, maybe we didn't see coming, especially especially consider the Nigeria game she missed because of the concussion as well. Don't think we could have quite forecasted talking about her in this way around that time. Well, yeah, you look back on it now, we probably did miss that spark going forward that Mary Fowler would have brought. And where I was going to go with that is all talking about Man City. A lot of people would have been frustrated. She's just moved there. She's not really getting a lot of game time. She probably would have been frustrated herself. The way she's grown, the way she's able to develop. I remember back from, if you think about Matilda's game, she played 12 months ago to now. It's almost night and day. Yeah, she was good back then, but now she looks like a world-class player and looks like someone that's indispensable to this team. So the fact that she's now going to go back to Man City, she's going to really be able to fight for a spot and possibly be a starter in that team, or at the very least have a much more major role than she was playing this year. It's only exciting from an Australian perspective, um, but still there's so many other players we could talk about. The midfield duo of Kyra Cooney-Cross and, and Katrina Gorry, absolutely fantastic. Steph Catley with the armband, really stepping up into her role as well. We already knew she was one of the best left-backs in the world, but the way that she's been able to really step up into this team and have such an influence. I generally thought she was the best player on the pitch in the Ireland match, and if anyone deserved to take the penalty and get a goal in that game, it probably was her. And even Mackenzie Arnold, I know it's probably more of an underrated aspect of this team, but this is someone who at one stage probably looked like the third choice keeper for the Matildas, especially when Michael was at her peak. I've got a, got a short short story about Mackenzie Arnold, right? Um, a tournament that I remember watching very fondly that for one reason or another, a lot of fandom just went missing. A lot of like your usual, um, you know, women's football fans didn't really have a lot of raps on, but I actually remember the legacy of that tournament being particularly good. The 2018 Asian Cup in Jordan, we lost the final to Japan and Mackenzie Arnold made a notoriously bad mistake uh, in the opening minutes of the game where she's been chipped from halfway and she's sort of lost it in her glove and it's fallen through and rolled into the back of the net. And I just remember sitting around that time thinking, I'm, I'm not sure that Mackenzie Arnold's career is going to recover beyond this point, you know. Um, but also at the time recognizing that there were a lot of veterans and a lot of people who were still only at A-League standard around the setup at the time. You fast forward, she's been playing in England, you know, she's had this big uh, rise in her career. And, and then, you know, have you add in the fact that her as a, uh, as a character is really binded by the fact that she is, in fact, uh, sort of deaf in one ear or has, you know, hearing issues in, in, in one ear. Um, and 
just that character development to see over the preceding five years is a really, really fascinating one. And I think the more we familiarize ourselves with a lot of what's going on for uh, Mackenzie Arnold personally and a lot in her career uh, over the last five years in particular, do yourself a favor, you know, have a, have a Google, watch some, watch some content, look, look around at, at who she's become because it is actually very, very impressive. And someone that, as you say, a very underrated element of a big part of this Matilda's success. Wait, clean sheets? I know it's a whole defense thing, but she's pulled off some great, great saves so, in that time as well. And you don't even need to go back five years to think about it. She was part of that 7-0 loss that we had to Spain 12 months ago. She yeah. was in goals that day too. Yeah. And look, I wouldn't say any goals were her fault in particular, but you look at it and you, the first thing you'd probably think is, oh, maybe if we had Lydia Williams or Tegan Micron at that time, maybe it doesn't happen. But the fact that she's been able to grow from that, and you talk about the last five years as well, ever since she's moved to West Ham, she really has just been growing and growing and growing. And this season, she really had a standout season for West Ham. And in the meantime, Micah's still kind of at a little bit of a lower level. It'll be interesting to see how that changes now with her move to Liverpool. But Lydia Williams has spent kind of the last two years of clubland football in the wilderness as well. She didn't really get much game time at, at her back end of her Arsenal career. She didn't get much game time when she went to PSG. She's gone to Brighton. Even when she went to Brighton, it was a bit iffy about whether she was going to be the number one. Eventually, she was able to put herself in that position. But in that meantime, Arnold was playing consistent football for arguably a better club than what Brighton is. Mm. So the fact that she's been able to put herself in a position like that and a, and a team that's a mid-table in the WSL as well, it, it's a testament to her and her rise. And it's a testament mm. to West Ham for really giving her that opportunity to grow into the player that she is. So... Yeah, Arnold, I think she definitely deserves a bit of praise there because she's been absolutely fantastic. We'll move on to the France game as well. A quick word on that because France, they they look like they're starting to hit form as well. I know I had, uh, maybe not a couple of choice things to say, but a couple of questions after their first game to Jamaica. Obviously, they came back off the loss to the Matildas as well. That match is now going to be replayed. How do you see this game playing out? Yeah, it's 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 so easy to just cast your mind back to the game that happened in Melbourne and go, well, there's your reference point. But it, I think it's a deeper issue than that, mostly because of what's been going on in France's camp. I think that they have grown a lot uh, with the tournament. I think Renard is slowly finding his way as manager of France. Um, but you know, I, I'm just thinking of of the threat with uh, Diani and and Lussemer going forward, and I'm also just thinking about what we started this show talking about about how you know efficient the Matildas can be on, on the counter-attack sometimes and how that's really important when you're playing an attack of this quality. So is it is it wrong to be confident? I don't know. But the Matildas have never, ever played in a World Cup semi-final. So to treat this game like it's it's sort of there's not a lot going on in that respect this is ridiculous. But but at the same time, I just can't fight off the fact that we've sort of already seen them do it. And from what we understand tactically, like it actually should be a very doable job. Tilts. And it's it's such a weird feeling going into the game, feeling like that when it's the biggest game they've ever played. Is is that is that a bit? Is, of a, I don't know if it's do- I don't know if it's I don't know if doable is the right word. I'd say I think possible is probably the better choice because doable sounds like we probably should be going out there and doing it. I don't think we have a God-given right to you be asked, friends. You asked certain people in football media, they would say that that sort of is the case. The Matildas okay. are favourites well, for the match. But you're talking about... We're, we're talking about two sides that are roughly on the same level. France maybe just that little bit above us. If you go, look at the rankings, that's definitely mm-hmm. the case. 
in we Australia. all know the rankings in are a Australia, bit of bullshit. Where, where the match is being played in Australia, that's just the one thing that's tipping that's everyone that to say that the Matildas are favourites. True, but you've got to remember as well, this is a French side that, one, has a lot of quality, two, has the quality that they have at their disposal or prepared to play because of the changing coach, mm. three, because of that change, much better mood in this camp. Now they're starting to actually build a bit of form under Herve Renard as well. Obviously, there was that bumpy start. Maybe in terms of the World Cup, I can't remember their friendly results when he first came in. But this this isn't the that same French side that we would have played maybe 12 months ago. It is the same French side that we played four weeks ago, but it's, it's a, a French, French side that has improved. That couldn't score against Jamaica. Swabby okay. sisters, Swabby sisters, very much taken into account. I, yes. I was going to say you, you you bring up that game. We all remember how much you were going on about Jamaica's defense in the last podcast. So I don't know if that's what we should I be can't focusing. Wait to talk about that Columbia game. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give you free reign to talk about the Swabby sisters later. We're not focusing on that now. We're focusing on the people that they shut down, and that is uh, Les Summer and Co. Look, I'm not going to sit here and say it's doable or we, we should be going out to win this. This is You've got to take that mental aspect into account as well. The Matildas have never played a game like this. The Matildas, are, okay, yeah, we've been in a World Cup quarterfinal before, but now we're going into a World Cup quarterfinal thinking, oh, fuck, we've got a really good chance of making a semi-final here. There's still going to be that mental aspect to play. Yes, the mental aspect hasn't probably been a problem for the Matilda so far, but now you're talking the expectations of a nation. And I feel like if we keep saying, yep, the Matilda should be able to do this, they've got this, I'll go through. It's not that easy. It's not that clear-cut. This France side I is a good look, football listen, team. Listen, from, from a Matilda's perspective, just to counter what you're saying there, Look, they, they didn't have an issue being under the pressure, a lot of pressure, in that Canada game where they proceeded to score four goals. France is a different prospect. France France is a different prospect. But that they, like Canada, have also shown that they're not, you know, they, they can be sort of, um, you know, sort of, I'm struggling to find the word, but they can be made inefficient. And and I think that when when we're talking about a position where the Matildas are going to have a lot of pressure, you, you have to compare that, you know, the, the, what we're talking about with Francis' momentum and actually apply the same logic to, to the Matildas anyway. So where the pressure actually fits in that, Cody, I, I don't I don't know that it's even that big of a factor. And I'm, Maybe pressure I'm, isn't I'm the right word confident. because you, you compare it to the Canada game, I think the Canada yeah. game is probably more suited to what the Matildas are used to doing. Backs to the wall, win or at all costs, win or go home, that sort of thing, like making sure, you know, kind of almost having a reputation in a way where, you know, if we lose this match, like this is going to be a massive disappointment. You've, we've seen the Matildas plenty of times come out of that situation, and you know there was there was issues going into that Canada game, more on field tactically perspective in, in that kind of perspective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But this is a game where you know maybe the pressure isn't there in terms of we need to make the semi final, but in terms of you know you're one step away from pretty much being the greatest Matilda side that has ever existed. Yeah, it's it's a it's a unique kind of pressure, and it's not a pressure that comes from expectation. It's a pressure that comes from maybe possibility, I guess. So I'm not saying the Matildas can't do it. Definitely not. They've got every chance of winning this game. But it is probably that more of a unique situation for us where, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. You know, the Matildas could go, could go out. France, you know, they, they have played in these big games before. They've gone through in these big games before. Maybe that experience shines through. You're talking about a coach that knows how to get the best out of a team on a certain day. We all remember Argentina and Saudi Arabia in the opening match of the Men's World Cup. Well, both teams' opening matches of the Men's World Cup. It's it's a different situation. And then you've got to take into account as well, okay, on one hand, 
we will have a, a home support as well. On the other hand, maybe France just slightly pip us for that quality. So when you balance all things out, it is quite an even matchup. So I don't know if it's, it's coming back to this whole point of, I don't think it's a doable job. It's more of a possible job. Possible. 100% we can get through. But I yep. think France just have yep. just as much right to get through as we do. No, they, they certainly do. Um, and uh, Cody, I've got, to, I've got to be honest with you. I, I, I can't say off the top of my head that I remember how they did in the Euros, but. I they're believe definitely... it was the quarters. Yeah. Okay. So they're, no, they're, maybe the semis. Maybe the semis. They got through. They got through the group, but they weren't quite there at the the end of the tournament. Right. We we've can establish that. So look, we're in a position with France where they've still had to come over this transitional period. They have had to hire a new coach, and they have had to grow slowly into the tournament with with that momentum. What they haven't faced in that time is a high pressure situation where it is all stakes. For both teams of, uh, both teams on the, on the field. There is the cultural element of it being Australia playing in a quarter final in an Australian World Cup. And I just wonder if all of that in the, in the, the conversation about the Matilda's mentality and where they're at, how much that affects France to begin with anyway, because, because France have had this long reigning development and on paper, they don't, they don't look like a side where because of the development stages that they're going through on paper, they have the quality. But the, the overarching conversation that has to be had about where they're at as a team and where they're transitioning and where they're going as a team, they don't shape up to me like they're the most formidable position to be, uh, opposition to be playing in this scenario. And that's a really important element to sort of not make France out like they're the greatest team ever that we're facing in a game like this, even though we absolutely should be giving them that respect. I just don't actually think when, when I, I differentiate possible from doable i'm just looking at it thinking i would still favor the matildas in this scenario all factors considered i'm not diminishing france's quality i'm just i'm taking the whole picture into account and i think that's a very look, important I know, thing to think. i know you're not silly enough to diminish france's quality and I, I think it's just a matter of falling in i think what i'm trying to say is we shouldn't fall into a trap of expecting the matildas to win this game because they, they don't have that expectation on them i don't think look a lot of people have said when it comes to how we should be performing that, this tournament. Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that, like, isn't that all the more reason why they should go out and play at their very best? Is the uh, fact that well, well, the Australian public aren't sitting there going, win this game. No, but uh, that's the thing. I'm worried some people are. That's, 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 that's where my issue's coming in. I feel like there are people that are sitting there going, yep, we're in the quarterfinals. Now we're going to go and make the semis. It's not that straightforward. France are a good team. And mm-hmm. just to confirm, yes, they did make the semifinals of the Euros. So we're talking okay. about one of the top four teams in Europe. We all know how much Europe has quality when it comes to football. Now it's that translating into women's football as well. This is, this isn't going to be an easy game. And I know you're not doing this and I'm not saying, I'm not saying this have an attack at you per se, but more the idea that, you know, this is, this isn't going to be a straightforward game for us. This isn't something that we're just going to go and blow France out of the park. If I had to put my prediction in and I'm going to ask you the same thing right now, mm. I say, oh, look, I'll probably say the Matildas go through, but. We go through on penalties. That's that's probably my prediction for this game. And stop it. Yeah, both of us are going to have heart palpita- heart palpitations for two and a half, three hours. It's not going to be fun, but I think that's what happens. Yeah, look, I I I can guarantee that the game is going to be as tense and and as dramatic and and you know, as exciting as as any good game of this billing is. But 
like you and like you've just said, I, I can still just see the Matildas going through. So I want to make it out like it's the the, the biggest game ever, but there is that 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 part of me that still acknowledges that it maybe actually probably isn't. France are, a, are the biggest threat we've faced at this tournament. I don't think that's debatable. I, I think I think the biggest game. This is probably the biggest game of Matilda's history. Like I don't I don't want to diminish it in that sense, but I, I, it's more expectation around this game. That's where I was trying to say. I don't think it's 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 it, there's a reason why it's the biggest game in our history. Put it that way. Okay, you're you're talking more culturally though, right? I guess. Yeah. What do yeah, you mean? Okay. Well, I'm I'm just trying to think that they've definitely played like you know they've played the USA and Sweden at big games in the Olympics, right? So you know, when oh they, when yeah, they, of course, they... of course. But look, making the I, I'm, yeah, I'm talking more from a cultural sense. Making the final of the Olympics is different to being the top four in a World Cup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but have we, I mean, have we actually won an Olympic medal for football? I don't, I don't think. No, the Matildas making the semi final at the last Olympics was the furthest they've ever gone at a major sport. Yeah. Major yeah. Which is, which is, in, which is interesting. But, but obviously, we're not, I'm not talking about the impact of that being bigger on Australian society. I'm, I'm more or less talking about the fact that we're, we're facing a more formidable opponent in that situation. And when you when you sort of see what the French team mean, um, in in that by that metric alone, I mean, yeah, I don't actually think it is the toughest game that they have come up against in any one set scenario at any one tournament. Cody, you could even say when we've played Japan and Korea in Asian Cup finals that that's that's the in terms of the quality that Japan have possessed at a time like that that that's that's been a bigger deal as well. Yeah, uh, um, yeah. Look, like but, I said, when I, I say biggest I game, I, I mean because, culturally. Because it's 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 the home World Cup. We've never made semi-finals. Objectively speaking, it is the biggest game ever. But I, I just, I just don't want to give France all the honor of saying like if we beat you, it's the, it's just the biggest moment of all time because it's more it's more the tournament scenario. It's more the expectations of people around them that that are making that so big. But to to even go back on what we we're saying before, they're not making it out like it's the biggest game of all time. Even though when we strip it back, as you've said, it, it sort it sort of it sort of is. No, and look, there's, there's if we do, let's just say we do win this game, the next two games mm. we play, it gets bigger and bigger, and the reality is those opponents get better and better. Better. Well, yeah, if we exactly. play, so if we do play World Cup final, hypothetical semi final against England, given that they are the European champions, given that Australia is hosting the World Cup, that that's the biggest game of women's football maybe actually ever played. It, look, so maybe like, not arguably yeah. ever, but you're t- you're talking at least in recent history. It's probably one of the biggest games yeah. you could have in the World Cup because England's probably the side with the most momentum behind them in women's football. Anywhere you talk, look at the two teams above them in the rankings. Yeah. You have all well, three teams above them in the rankings. You have Sweden, who they beat four nil in the Euros. You have Germany, who they beat the final in the Euros, and you have the USA, who let's be real, aren't as good as what they were four years ago. So, in that case, yeah, you're probably facing. Arguably the highest quality side you could face in the biggest scenario that we've ever had in the Matilda's history. So, yeah, so many things at play, but we've got to get through France first. That's the issue. You think Matilda's going through? I think the Matilda's are going through in the most, um, heart attack way possible. I, I think didn't give we a can... prediction. Sorry? I didn't give a prediction. You said you th- saw the Matilda's going through. Yeah, but I, I didn't give like a scoreline prediction. Well, give, give me a scoreline. I didn't give a scoreline technically. Do you want me to? Oh, yeah, you didn't either. <laughs> Go on then. All right, look, I honestly, probably one all normal time, one all extra time. Very, very, um, how do you say? It, it'll be, it'll be a cagey affair. I think, look, we Thank either, you. we either France score early, then the other, other team, whoever it may be, scores around the 60th minute. I, I kind of want to say the same thing. 
I will say, I will say, well, no, but if I just say one, one, I'm gobbing you right. But I'm expecting like, you know, cagey, tense, physical. I, I want to say they'll trade blows, but I, I might say nil, nil, baby, nil, nil. A winner in extra time in a one nil affair. I that, know. Look, that's, 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 that's a headline making moment. Especially if it's a Matilda. Either way, whoever, yeah. if that does happen, you know, whoever gets that goal is a hero. Look, we will move on. There is still other parts of the tournament we are talking about. This is a World Cup podcast, not just a Matilda's podcast. So we do have plenty to go through. And Matt, I want to talk to you about this because this is something that we really went through in detail uh, the last time we were on. And you were adamant, very, very adamant that Sweden were going to, I don't know if you said they'd stroll through, but you said they'd be winning this game in Melbourne. Yeah. They did. They probably did it in the, the hardest way they possibly could have, mm. but they got the job done. And mm. since then, I have become obsessed with ABBA. <laughs> yeah, funny. <laughs> weird, 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 weird outcome of that game, I know, but I wanted to celebrate Sweden's we, victory. We, I couldn't think of any way better. Can we can we just talk about this substantively from a football perspective? Because the USA, the USA actually dominated that game, and by all, that's, by all that's, means, that's that's part of this that I want to talk about because you know we we were, we were harsh about the USA, we USA, were. especially after that game we against were. Portugal. We we kind of ripped them to shreds. And then they came out, and they play some of the best football I've seen in this tournament. Yeah, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's what's broken with the U.S. Uh, soccer program, and especially the women's side. The world is not theirs anymore, right? It's just they're, they're not a global superpower in the way that they once were, and the mentality is broken. It's The, the, the system is broken because, because you play that game in that scenario where they're dominating, no matter the opponent. They win. They 100% win. So why didn't they? Like, they couldn't find They couldn't find the goal. Like butchered penalties. Like this is not the USA. It's not. And seeing an emotional Jess McDonald on Optus Sport afterwards, I was like, bro, like, like I just one hundred percent agree. Like it's just broken. It's not. It's not what it was. And I know it's it's stupid of me to sit there and go, yeah. Well, I was kind of right with what I said, especially because they did dominate the game. But you look at why they lost, and why they lost is very important in that. You can have twenty more shots. But if you're not going to actually convert that into winning a game of football, like you're not, you're not, you're not the team that you once were. Because to be fair, there was a, it, you know, we're talking about, look, I think there were, look, Musovic made, I think it ended up being 11 saves in that game. You see a lot of situations where a keeper makes 10, 11, 12 saves and maybe nine or 10 of them are shots that have come straight at them that, you know, it looks good when they save it, but in reality, it'd look bad if it went in. There were, I reckon I could count maybe four or five at least saves that she made that, let's be honest, she had no right to save them. Like, you're talking world-class, beautiful, picturesque moments that she's been able to produce single-handedly. Yeah. And it's it's something I've never quite seen, particularly in women's football, uh, keep a performance of that caliber. Oh, I know I know what you're getting at, and I understand how slowly what you're getting at will deconstruct what I'm saying about the U.S. Because they, they wait. Did, what do you think I'm getting at? Uh, they did well. Well, it's simply that they, the USA, couldn't have done much more because Sweden was was so good in certain areas. The keeper being kind didn't... of okay, kind of. That's kind of what I'm saying. They probably couldn't have done much more in that game other than actually take these penalties. But when you say they couldn't have done much more, they could have done a hell of a lot more in the group stage because if they do, if they get the points they need. They're not, they're not playing, playing Sweden in that game, are yeah. they? They're playing South Africa. So yeah, in that right. case, it's you're it's right. an easy game for them. Look, I'm no disrespect to South Africa, but look, they're not Sweden. 
So that's probably the best way I can put it. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I think from, from a Swedish perspective, you've also got to praise the way that they knew exactly what they were up against and they, they stood up for the occasion. So, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating one. And it, it was always going to be dramatic and amazing and, and incredible because it was it was a game that on paper should never have happened to to begin with. Sweden and USA in the round of 16 at a World Cup. It was, it was awesome. No, exactly. And it came from, like I said, USA, they underperformed in the group stage. They got the tie that they deserved. They had to play the best team of another group. They they came out and dominated that game, let's be real. But Sweden did what they had to do. They had one player step up in brilliant fashion. And I think we've got to kind of touch on this part as well. The way that that penalty shootout ended was, in a way, look, it, it was a little bit comical. I don't think I've ever seen VAR, goal, well, not VAR. I've never seen goal line technology needed for a penalty shootout. <laughs> but do you think that's a bit synonymous with, okay, yep, like this USA side's gone out early but they've done they've gone out in probably possibly the weirdest way we've ever seen at any football tournament yeah there's there's two things i would say immediately first and foremost is obviously musovic was incredible in sweden's goal Alyssa nail was the mvp of that shootout which for a goalkeeper to be the starring player in a shootout that you in fact have lost is a very very fascinating anomaly and i think it's but but look the fact that they've lost this game i still think from top to bottom is emblematic of the fact that europe is better than the us at women's football now I um, mean, I, I, you know, I, I'm. It's a bit of a hot take. It's a bit of a sweeping statement. It is. Oh, I, but, I think. Look, we've. You said it on the last podcast. The 2019 and 2023 were basically evident of Europe's rise in women's football, and this tournament was meant to be the capitulation where Europe finally overtook these European nations. Really overtook where the US is now, and the USA need to move on from this. And there's there's a lot they need to change. We spoke about it on the last podcast where they're, you know, you just said now they are no longer the top country in women's football. They're no longer the team to, they're no longer always the team to beat. Their league now, that I said last time, isn't the top league in women's football. If those players in the US national team, especially the younger ones, because, you know, let's be real, there's still a lot of talented players coming through. If those younger ones really want to keep up with players across women's football of a similar age, that are going to progress because they are playing against players that are as good as them week in, week out. Those younger players need to get themselves in those environments too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just, it's a big, it's a big systemic, uh, you know, conversation that any country has at any point that anything happens in their footballing history, um, you know, uh, uh, judged by World Cup performance. Um, you look at Morocco, for example, both men and women, what's working so well for Morocco? their football curriculum, their football education, the fact that they're excelling in the African continent where, you know, to be delivering for for all of Africa is a very important thing. Um, and, you know, the USA, I feel, have almost become complacent and aren't having those big, deep, systemic conversations because the 2019 World Cup in particular, they, they sort of won very, very easily. And that almost, in a way, was part of the problem. Is that is that you know we knew this rise was coming in a post-COVID world of Europe, and the US didn't do enough to address that in time. So for the first time ever, they're having this big systemic conversation that most countries have when it comes to World, to World Cup football and the entire footballing system and curriculum in in one country's uh, you know jurisdiction. And then like it's crazy because because they're just they're not used to it. So it'll be a very interesting shift to see in the coming years how they rebound from that and what steps they put in place, what they do in their domestic competition. 
And look, you look at the fan sentiment, especially around Australia afterwards, it looked like a lot of people were a bit happy. And I know you mentioned on the last podcast, it does come from the fact that, you know, a lot of people want to see someone new kind of step up and win this tournament. We are going to get that now, of course. It could be a completely new nation. The only previous World Cup winner that's still in the tournament is Japan. So, you know, we've got a one in eight chance of, obviously, I'm confusing possibility, the probability here. But, you know, there's, there's still a good chance that we're going to see a completely new World Cup winner. And that's, that's quite special. There's going to be a nation that wins their first ever World Cup, possibly, on Australian soil. So no matter who it is, it's going to be a great story to play out. Going back to the US for a sec, we, you'd say they, they, they definitely do need to, there's systemic issues that they're going to need to address. How they address that, I don't know how they're going to do it. You never know. There could be a sense of, okay, maybe we've gotten a bit unlucky. We can keep going doing what we're doing and, 2027 comes around, God knows how things are going to go then. But if they do address those problems, considering the talent they still have at their disposal, I do think in 2027, we're more than likely going to see a minor resurgence of that country. They probably won't go and win the World Cup, but they've got the players to still threaten then go deep into a tournament. Let's be real. They are still up there with the best in women's football. But the change here that we're seeing is that they're no longer by far and away the best. and. It's only positive for the women's game. We will move on because you did mention Morocco and there and Jamaica's um, runs, unfortunately, have come to an end. I know you've been a big fan of Jamaica so far in this tournament, but Colombia, as much as it was against another nation that was, you know, kind of on a nice fairy tale run, but Colombia's fairy tale run themselves, it continues. How good is that to see? Yeah, they've, they've, uh, what they've essentially done is they've essentially taken Germany's, um, port, the sort of place in the, in the seeding tournament, having topped Group H and then having gotten through that game in the round of, round of, um, 16. I just got to say how glorious it was to experience a game that was supposed to be Germany against Brazil being in fact Colombia versus Jamaica. It just, it made my day. But what was even more crazy was I was going into it being on this massive Jamaica hype train. Going here, yeah, Swabi sisters, Bunny Shaw will be at her best. And look, I don't think they performed overly poorly. I think they were still they still uh, showed a lot of that discipline and that quality that they had throughout the tournament. They was simply just beaten by a superior opponent. And you can't ask seriously if you're if you're Lorna Donaldson, who I've been calling Lorna Davidson for most of the tournament. Um, like, can you even be that upset? Seriously, I wouldn't um, I be. Don't, look, I don't think it's it's a different game going up against a side like Colombia because when you go up against your France and Brazil, they don't expect a side like Jamaica to really give them problems. When you're going up against a side like Colombia, Colombia are on their own run themselves. Colombia are, are on a high that they probably didn't expect, and they're on their own fairy tale run. So you're not going up against someone that's looking at you as a minnow. You're going up against someone that's wanting to shock the world themselves. So when you've got two nations, vastly different approaches to football matches as well kind of collide like that it probably came out with the outcome that you would have expected in a way i know jamaica are set up fantastically defensively but colombia offers so much flair and creativity going forward that they were bound to you know fashion out even half a chance for themselves and in reality it it wasn't a you know it's not a goal that we're going to look at and it's going to be goal of the tournament but it was a very well taken and very nice clean finish yeah no i 100 percent agree um, and I think that, you know, you have a very unique challenge that, that stands before you with the Colombian side. Um, the fact that they were able to top what was a very chaotic group and what was one that was always shaping up to be quite a chaotic group. A lot of comments out of Europe and Australia in particular about the, the lack of quality that they have and that there actually is a big, big, big problem with women's football in South America. 
because you know there was only three comma bowl teams that got through. There is a lot of systemic sexism uh, with with regards to women not even really being allowed to play football um, in in most of South America. And I just think that it's a very very interesting tale that Colombia they were going to again. I always mention it that they were obviously going to bid to toast the competition, and they did actually always have the appetite there, and they've always had the culture and the quality. And I guess some of that some of that just got missed somewhere along the line. Like they were a country that was always capable of being a quarter finalist. Um, they were always a country that was capable of upsetting Germany and, and, and um, you know, showing a lot of what they've shown over time. But it's just a very, very unique, unique tale that's um, that's come before us and full power to whatever they can do against England. It'll be interesting because if they do get past that England game, suddenly they've got a semi-final in Australia, possibly against Australia. You know, they bring that noise, they bring the passion that they do. If they've got, you know, 40,000 fans, half that stadium backing them, it's going to be an atmosphere that, you know, women's football maybe has never seen in a way. Yeah, so, and I, I got to be honest with you, a big, a big passionate South American crowd, um, that's really intimidating in, in our neck of the woods. It would, it, there would be a lot of parallels to, uh, you know, November 16, 2005. Like it would be that exact scenario, wouldn't it? It'd be that exact scenario, but maybe with Colombia and this in the ascendancy in that regard, I'd probably compare it more to what, the soccer is faced in 2001 when they went to Uruguay in a way, except obviously yeah. now in our backyard. <laughs> yeah, no, I know, I know, I know what you're getting at. Um, it's a, it's a good, it's a good point and it's a nice conversation to have, but we'll have it when we have it. If, if that is in fact the, the, the fiction. Yeah, look, at the end of the day, Colombia do need to beat a very, very good England side, a good England side without. Just, just actually, just, just to end the Colombia conversation, let's put it out there in the discourse. Um, FIFA Women's World Cup 2027, Colombia. It could be. It could be. I don't know who's bidding for it. No, but, but they should. They should bid again because... 100%. And look, they've shown that they're, they're backing women's they, football. They It'd be, that, right? And look, a World Cup in South America, everyone's going to be excited by it. I can't imagine. There'd be very few people that would oppose it. So, you know what? Let's back it. You know, speak it into existence, my friend. But look, you did. we did mention England. Um, the England-Nigeria game, a little bit cagey. Both sides had some very good chances. Ends up going to penalties, but the big talking point out of that game, of course, Lauren James, a little bit of a moment of madness. I don't know. Look, I was yeah, watching this game. I've never seen anything like it. I, I was I was watching this game on a phone, little bits and pieces in the middle of Stadium Australia with the shitty internet you get at a stadium when there's seventy five thousand people there. Unfortunately, so I'm hoping you saw a bit more of this game than what I could. Yes. I hope you saw this moment live. What went through your head yes. when it happened? Yeah, yeah. Um, God. Um. You know, she she had. It's funny because because she had been playing particularly well. There was a lot of raps on on her and her personal performance, and you know, like I've, I, I, my immediate reaction, the person I was with just kind of bumped me on the shoulder and was like, "I'm not pretty sure she didn't mean that." <laughs> and look, yeah, look, it's <laughs> with the with the sort of the way it's played out afterwards, she, she probably didn't. Um, but to have that a brain fade that big. And to like, like drog your boot into someone's someone's backside, like just like, what are you doing? Like, yeah, it's it's one of the most bizarre red cards that I've ever seen, and it it actually really really affects England because they went through all all the emotions in that game, and they they got through by the skin of their teeth, which is something that we should really be talking about going into that Colombia game because if. If you think you can rest for a moment against Colombia, you, you you have something else going for you. Um, and, and yeah, Lauren James doing that like that really really does impact England's campaign going forward. 
there's a lot of parallels between Nigeria and Jamaica's um tournaments actually maybe okay actually probably a little bit far-fetched there but in the sense that Nigeria has gone through this tournament they've got three clean sheets a little interesting part about that as well is the fact that the one game they didn't keep a clean sheet was also the one game they were actually able to score in and the one game they ended up winning in yeah so and And a similar similar sort of dynamic with Jamaica not being being able to win without Bunny Shaw I mean we're talking we're not talking about the same substantive thing but a very sort of similar sort of cultural dynamic that's played out between the two two campaigns and I, I think the same way that Jamaica ran out France, you have a very similar dynamic in the way that Nigeria's been able to run out England and frustrate England in that game, ultimately needing penalties that they couldn't convert. Yeah, look, it does come down that come down to that, unfortunately. Or look, unfortunately, if you're Nigerian. It's funny, actually, because the lady that um Lauren James stepped on actually came out recently, and it speaks to another issue just across women's football that we're probably not going to go into detail in this very minute, but... The fact that she's actually a part-time, uh, what was it? Um, she's working. Is she's that do- studying. Doctor or a surgeon in Texas? Uh, doctor, surgeon. I know she works yeah. in research. I think she works in care- cancer research as well. I don't know the technical yeah. name for it. It's not oh, because okay. I haven't done my research. I'm just not very smart sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know these technical names for doctors, but look, yeah. I thought that was an interesting thing throughout there. She seems like a very cool person. The way she reacted when Lauren James kind of stepped on her, she kind of just sat there and laughed. I'm like, what the fuck has happened? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I thought yeah. that, that reaction was quite funny. Um, another big headline that's come out of this before we kind of just round out the round of 16 talk, Spain. Uh, obviously, you know, I'm going to bring them up. A very, very poor loss to Japan that you said, well, you said Japan, you could see Japan getting a result. Probably not in that fashion, but a lot of shock would have come around Spain losing that game in the way that they did in at the end of the group stage, to then turn around and beat Switzerland in the way they did, considering how that match was starting as well, that's, that's that's you know, we're starting to see Spain at their best again in a way, and it would be interesting to see how they move forward in this tournament now. Much like France, they're coming good at the right time, and they're getting rid of a lot of those previous demons that were, were hanging around. Um, the one thing that really gets me <laughs> uh, in this game is, is you, that, that shocking own goal happens and they have sort of the character to rebuild from it and continue dominating the game like nothing had happened um and i feel like there are sides out there where that really can affect you but spain were just so uber confident in themselves to pick themselves up and and yeah they just it was it was so good to see proper spanish flair in a, in a game of, of that meaning and and honestly it, it it showed that switzerland probably were quite fortunate to win their group in the fashion that they were um, you know, no matter who Spain faced in that game, they were they were done for when you consider some of the quality and, and some of the happenings on in, in Group A. Um, Spain were Spain were all right, and uh, yeah, just just really good to see them come confident at the right time and a big warning sign for a very sturdy Dutch team as well. I would dare say into that quarter final, Cody. Before before you hand over and, and you give me a bit of thoughts about the team and, and what's going right now. Um, the floral, uh, no floral, the, the coral reef kit of Spain. Is it a personal favourite of yours? Look, I love the classic bread. I love the home kits. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a traditionalist in that sense. I think if I'm going to speak to anything, I think in general, Adidas have really hit the mark with some of their away kits. It's funny, actually, because the obviously I was watching that game with my family. There were some family members that said they weren't a big fan of it. They actually thought it was quite an odd kit. So, yeah. Well, I think I think the thing is that obviously, in case you haven't noticed, the the um, theme of the World Cup has been nature. The the football uh, we had El Rickler, which had a really big meaningful story behind it at the Men's World Cup. The the bowl 
for the Women's World Cup is uh, oceans. So it's got like a, a nature theme. And all the kits have been inspired by by landscapes. And um, Spain, for whatever reason, chose the, the coral reef. Um, and, uh, and so I think when you add that significance into it and, and think about it, not as like a, a native Spanish thing, but in fact, as an, as an homage to the hosts of the World Cup, I think it's beautiful. I think it's really nice. So, well, yeah, I, I think if there's, one, if there's one I pick out in that regard, wouldn't like it, if, if there's one that I pick out in that regard, it's probably Japan's away kid. I think that's absolutely beautiful. That's, that's one where the Adidas have really, really done. Yeah. And the nature, job. the nature theme was nailed with also an homage to Mount Fuji. So they've gone with the aspect of nature and the, and the sky and the mountains, but they've done it from a Japanese perspective. Which well, is, yeah, which I think is really it's cool. meant to be, represent the sunset at Mount Fuji, which, yeah. Yeah. Look, I think if there's, I like the significance of it. I wouldn't say it's like my favorite kit in the world and I'm going to spend any cent that I have to make sure I get my hands on it. I definitely prefer the home kit. But yeah, it's definitely like it, it's easy on the eye. I don't mind it, but I do see the kind of controversy where maybe someone won't like it, but you can't deny its meaning, of course. We'll go back to the game because it's these Spanish sides, they do have a knack for. Spanish sides at major tournaments are usually a very, very big disappointment. You see it both in the men's and the women's, where you have so many world-class players at your disposal. You go into a tournament, there is a little bit of expectation there, and suddenly things just kind of you know, fall apart. There's a reason why that period where the men's were kind of dominating world football for a period of almost 12 years, why that means so much to Spanish people, because it's the first time we've seen a Spanish side actually perform maybe not to expectations you're winning three major tournaments in a row you're very much exceeding them but you're seeing a spanish side not perform and exceed what anyone was kind of expecting of them and considering the lead up to this world cup with the issues going on behind the scenes in spain obviously not everyone in both in-house and outside in the media is a fan of the current man at the helm so for them to really come into a tournament now and go yep we're going to play some good football. We've got most of our better players back. Let's see what we can do. And there's players that have kind of put those differences aside. Unfortunately, mm. they've had to put those differences aside to try and bring some joy to the Spanish population. It, it, it's a good thing. The thing is, can the you, Spanish can side you just, can is... You just touch, touch on this for me, because it, knowing the beef with the, with the manager, and like I, I looked this up recently and I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. But prior to Jorge Vilda, Spain had a manager that had been around since the 1980s and stayed until the 2015 World Cup cycle. That, like, that just doesn't, that I'm struggling to understand how that makes any logical sense. And then Jorge Vilda comes around and he's given basically this authoritarian reign over the women's football program. And it's just baffling to me. But as an individual and knowing all the beef that's gone on, how do you come out and play a style that's so sexy on the eye? Knowing that you actually really dislike the man that's at the heart of that, how 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 does that happen, Cody? Look, it's not a style that's not synonymous with Spain. It's it's everyone knows how Spain play. They like to have the ball. They like to move the ball quickly, and they like to make sure the opposition starved of it. We're seeing an evolution in the men's team where they are starting to instead of holding onto the ball and playing this really slow tempo, they're starting to move the ball forward a little bit quicker. And we're seeing bits and pieces of that come with the women's program as well. There is that evolution. There is that transition. I think maybe the issues do. And look, I'll be honest. I'm not 100% across like the really, really deep specifics of where the issues are coming from. I know there's 
that authoritarian aspect of it that people aren't happy with. And the reality is, you know, you see it with the French side, Herve Renard's come in, he's changed the culture. You see, if you had that happens with the Spain team, this side really will meet their expectations. But what I was going to say, this is a Spanish side that, yeah, now they're in the quarterfinal, they're playing brilliant football. But yeah. this is a side that technically probably should expect themselves to go to the grand final, possibly even win it. I know it's a big call to say that you should expect to win a tournament like the World Cup, but Spain in reality, and if you look at how this side is very much a core of Barcelona, maybe some of those, not maybe, some of those core Barcelona players haven't come into the Spanish side for their personal reasons and their personal, you know, these, these personal issues with the coach, with Vilda. But there is a talent, there is enough of a talent there for them to really go on and go far into this tournament. If they go into this, uh, Holland game, Holland game. If they go into this Netherlands game and they don't win this game, or even if they don't get past Japan and make it to the final, it's really going to come to a head because the media is going to come back on them and say, you know, this is a side that really probably should be going further than what they have. Why haven't they? It happened at the, it happened at the Euros. People thought there was going to be a change when they only made the round of 16. They didn't end up winning their group when really they probably should have. I know they came second to Germany, but you know, this is a side that probably should be beating them. There's, if it happens two tournaments in a row where they don't really meet the media's expectations, and look, I'll be honest, the media in Spain, it's, it's quite harsh. It's not like us where we sit there and go, we're coming up against this good side. Let's hold off on expectations. That they expect to go into those games and win. But if they don't, it's going to come back on them. They're going to ask the same questions they did 12 months ago after the Euros. And if the Spanish FA don't sit there and go, okay, yeah, we need to change, you're going to see players, you're going to see more players pull out of the national team and it won't be a thing of yeah, they'll come back for a major tournament because they don't want to lose the possibility of playing in it. They'll probably start sitting out those tournaments too. And when that happens, you know, how long can the FA, can the Spanish FA really support such an unpopular and undesirable coach? It's it's one of the great questions of this World Cup is should Spain succeed? What will it actually do for the women's game? And I think that the unfortunate reality is a lot of people think a lot won't change. Um, and, and that's, that's something that, that, you know, you, you are at odds with a lot going on. In, the problem is if they know, succeed, what, the Spanish FA sits there and goes, we're justified in what we did. No, and no, 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 but this cre- is, this is, this is what I mean. Like, yeah, you're, you're it, and it creates a bigger issue than what you have. Yeah. You're at, you're at odds with every fiber and every belief in yourself. To, to sit there and say, well, this is my country and I want my country and I want football in my country to be the very best that it can be. But you have to have this conversation of, well, success means, you know, a continuation of what is a really, really tough time for, you know, for the development of, of the game. And that, that is something that you just, it's, it's all, but it's also it's interesting really that terrible. in a time where, you know, the morale around the Spanish camp probably isn't at its peak and very, very far from its peak, that they're still able to to come out and play such good football. Like you said it before, it's extremely sexy football. It's beautiful football, and it's a classic football that you expect from a Spanish national team when they're at their peak. The fact that they're not at their peak just makes it all the more extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, I mean, you know, I, I, I would like to see a World Cup winning side in Spain start some sort of movement. But I think you and I can both acknowledge that 
should success come to them. We we just can't predict any miraculous, uh, you know, situation. If the Spanish like side that, wins so, the World like Cup, that. nothing will change, and it will probably set back everything they've worked for. I I understand why you're certain, but don't don't be so certain. I, <laughs> you know, there's football's there's a funny game. I guess belief. football's a funny game. Yeah, and and the nature and the growth of women's football is an even funnier game. So well, look, it'll we, it'll play out in mysterious ways, man. Could you have told me prior to this tournament that we were going to be outrating the AFL Grand Final? Yeah, no. Look, I probably wouldn't have pictured that much, in, or not much interest. People were obviously going to follow the Matildas, but for it to be doing numbers like that, maybe it comes from me not really knowing the specifics of the AFL numbers. For anyone that's interested, <laughs> I don't really care okay, okay. about the let AFL. Me, let me phrase it another way, uh, in, in the way that I've already said, and I'm just going to give you, I'm just going to give you a little bit of time to just let that sit in your brain, okay? Okay. Nearly between fifteen to twenty percent of the Australian population watched that game against them. It's nuts. It's nuts. Why? Why do you think Spain can't have the same impact? Happen? Because, unfortunately, the Spanish FA is stubborn. If success comes their way, they'll they'll be justified in what they did, and they'll let it continue. That's 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 where that's where my mindset's at anyway. Look, there are two other teams that have made the round of sixteen, probably in more routine circumstances, the same way as the Matildas, uh, Japan, Netherlands. We'll round our round of sixteen chat with them. To be honest, and we look, did, we Japan, didn't Japan look good. Netherlands look okay. What's your thoughts? Sorry. We didn't talk about the France-Morocco game in a similar fashion. We, we think... said Morocco, you said at the start, Morocco and Jamaica's fairytale ends, and then we actually didn't touch on that game. So, just to... Yeah, well, look, France, oh, I wouldn't say it was a routine victory for them. I think they, they came out and quite pl- played quite well. But, yeah, look, I think it was kind of the end we expected of Morocco. They come up against yeah. the big side. They, I, I won't say capitulate, but oh, it, it was probably the result <laughs> we expected of them in a way. Yeah. But yeah, exactly. it's still and good I'm... on Francis' part to go out and score four goals. You can't deny a side that's done that, really, can you? No, exactly. And especially the way you start the game, you immediately establish that dominance and you immediately remind remind Morocco, hey, this golfing quality exists. I just thought it was something worth touching on because I don't want to sit there and talk in depth about what well, Japan did this and the Netherlands did this without touching on France. Well, look, to be fair, do we need talk in depth about what Japan and Netherlands did? Japan came out and did yeah. what they've been doing all group stage, which, which we've spoken about already. The Netherlands game, South Africa probably put up a bit of a fight. I don't know if Netherlands were at their best. I'll be honest. It was look, it was a bit of a dull game. No, um, and I think the physicality of it particularly affected South Africa and the way that they were looking to set up. The fact that you had South African players going down with injury and you know players being off the pitch and they were going to be subbed and then they weren't subbed and like that just <laughs> just hands the games to the Netherlands, right? Like you, you're not really going to be able to build back and have that shot counter and that shot goal when you you're going through stuff like that and. It was just a bit too much for Desiree Alice to, to stay on top of as, as a manager. Um, and it was, it was the perfect opportunity for the Netherlands to prove a game where they didn't need to do a whole lot. And ultimately, yeah, it was, it was quite boring and quite dull. Yeah. And then look, on the other hand, you got Japan who, you know, they did have that scare. Norway were able to come back, claw their way back into that game. And then Norway kind of gave the game back to Japan in a sense. But look, I guess if there's anything you can say about Japan, they genuinely look like a side that could go deep into this tournament. We've we've said it before already, and we've said it sporadically through this podcast as well. They look like a world-class team. They've obviously got a strong football department, and, you know, changes they made back in the 90s are really coming to a fruition now where they really look like this juggernaut team. And then they, on top of that, 
they've got the ability to adapt, to adapt to a certain circumstance the way they did against Spain, where it's not the game they're going to dominate, but they're still able to kind of sit back and play that transition game and still yep. look so fluid doing it. So, you know, there's, there's probably not much more detail that we can go into Japan. No, but, than, but I think, I think the one thing you can say, and it's yeah. a very important uh, element to talk about with Japan, Sweden is exactly the right team to be playing at this moment for them if they're going to be so successful so as to win another World Cup. And I say this simply because Sweden are the type of team that has a European opposition in the same way that Spain were. They're a team that you're going to expect a lot of really good, efficient football from, be very tough, be a dominant uh, European team. If they can counteract that and play the typical Asian football that we know that they excel at and that unique Japanese brand with very technical movement that they play so well, if it can excel against a European opponent again in the quarterfinal, they're the real deal. If it's a case of Sweden with their own sort of, uh, you know, tactical um, sort of insight on the game playing out and them being able to sort of make sure they don't have a Spain moment, um, for me, it actually shapes up as, as the one game to watch and the one indicator of who's really going to emerge as a favourite in that semi-final. I know that's it's a big, it's a big call. And I'm so, and again, I'm sorry because obviously we were just talking quite intimately about Spain. But for me, Spain or the Netherlands against a Sweden side that's been over to overcome what Japan and the USA offered compared to the, the Japan possibly having that rematch against Spain given the 4-0 that happened or against the Netherlands where they've just proven themselves against that Swedish outfit. Can, you can see where I'm going with that, right? That this, no, the, no, the, the winner of, yeah, the winner of Sweden and Japan shapes up as the, the favorite in that semi final. And therefore means when you, when you sort of pull the, the, the bracket all together, if you're Australia or England or France, you're looking at that game thinking, Hey, we, you know, we could be playing you in the big one. So let's, let's be aware of that. And it's, it, you know, it's not blatant disrespect. It's sort of the analysis of the Australia France game in many ways. It's just it is an outcome that you can see brewing together, and and that's um, that's something that you really you love to give some hindsight on, and especially as someone who's sort of on a podcast analysing this, I'd like to provide that insight because if it becomes true, I'm a bit of a football genius, <laughs> bit of a football expert as we meant to call ourselves. To be fair, no, what I was going to say was it actually moves on to what I was going to talk about next, if anything, because I was going to say let's talk about the quarterfinal games. You've already kicked us off impromptuly, so. That Japan-Sweden game, we've already gone through, I guess. That Spain-Netherlands game, whoever comes mm. out of that one maybe isn't going to be the favourite simply because of their path to it. Obviously, Sweden, it'll be interesting, actually, if I could comment on anything with the Japan-Sweden game. When it came to Spain and Japan, you did say Spain leading into that game that hadn't been challenged in a way that would have prepared them to face the side that Japan is, whereas Sweden have. So that probably plays into part where, you know, maybe Japan aren't going to be able to go into this game and steamroll them in the way they have. Yeah have in other games so because with sweden you've you've just overcome overcome the unique challenge of having to play the usa in a round of 16 game you're going to be prepared for things to be a little bit out of whack and that's exactly look that chaos is exactly what gives technical asian sides a bit of prowess so for me sweden shape up quite nicely into the game i'd be willing to pick them maybe two one three one um just just off that alone just off the ability and the knowledge to be able to counteract what japan offer but of course if they show up and do the naive European thing, we know what's happening, and it's not it's not fun for them. <laughs> you know? Definitely, you can ask Spain. It's not a fun ride. But look, we will go to that Spain game, where look, Spain obviously have built into this tournament quite nicely, or have built following that 
bad defeat to Japan quite nicely. Netherlands probably don't look like they're at their best, but we did see a very good um, Netherlands side in the group stage. This game kind of shapes that Japan, not Japan, Netherlands really need to step up from what we've seen them in a knockout game so far, whereas Spain, if they're able to continue on this trajectory that they are, you'd have to consider them favourites still, wouldn't you? You know, it's funny, because when I last said this, I was talking about Spain, but with the Netherlands. They go into uh, the match day three game uh, against uh, Japan, against Spain, in that they haven't been tested yet. You have not been playing at that intense level. And when you've got the technicality of a Spanish team coming at you, I know it's it's exactly the same argument as what I made with that Japan game, but it's true. It's true. They they yeah. haven't actually had that elite test yet. So, yeah, I, I would expect Spain, if they're going to set the tempo, go go back to match day one. Go back to that night, famous night at Eden Park. If you set the tempo early, you never know what you're going to be able to produce. Spain need to make sure that they're on the front foot within the first five to ten minutes. They're probably going on to, to win the game. And look, from what we've seen from the Spain side so far in this tournament, they can go on the front foot quite early and they can get a goal quite early. Yeah, exactly. We've already and spoken about... The Netherlands. That'll shock the Netherlands so much to the point where they won't be able to recover. You got a score prediction? Spain 2-0. Yeah, I'd say so. Maybe 2-1. Netherlands, look, they're good going forward. They're not... You can't discount them. Yeah, but Berenstein, Jill Rort, there's a lot of quality there, obviously, but I'm just... I'm picturing Spain controlling that game fairly early on. How does um, Vanderdonk's absence play out in this game too? Yeah, it, it's it's an asset for the Netherlands that you, you sort of this is the game where you you need all you need everything to sort of come together. I think anyway, um, and there's just a bit too much fire in the belly from a Spanish perspective to the point where yeah, it's a, it's a big asset that you just you need there and then. So all the more reason to tip Spain uh, to win. Well, look, we've already spoken about Australia and France. We've offered our insight predictions, whatever you want from that. England and Colombia. You're talking 75,000 seat stadium, two very vibrant sets of fans, two sides that are going to want to be on the front foot, that are going to want to attack. Colombia, you know, we saw it when they played Germany. They weren't happy to kind of sit back on their laurels and let Germany have the ball. They wanted the ball themselves and they wanted to go forward with it. They wanted to dominate that game, even from a statistical point of view. Now you're playing against the England side, which is that just that little bit better, does offer a lot going forward. Obviously now without Reese James, James, Lauren James, that is so poor for me. I do apologize, but you know it is a different. It, it's a different beast. It's a different kind of quality. We've we've spoken about who's possibly going to make the final, and you talk about Australia, France, and England. We're not talking about Colombia. Do you think that's unfair in Colombia? Do you think they can get through this game? No, I, I mean, look, my analysis on this it, it's so tough because I'm 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 trying to map out like what is the route to victory for Colombia, right? I'm, I'm doing cartwheels in my head. Like, <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to say that, okay, well, if they hold off till half time and England are yet to score, at what point do they sort of change from doing, adding a lot of South American flair going forward? How exactly do they counter in the game? How will England shape up defensively? Where, at which point should the tempo be set to turn it around? Can they hold out for 120 minutes with a lack of quality on the bench? There's just so much of that where I'm just, I'm trying to be like, yeah, that's it for Colombia. That, 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 that's how they can win the game. I can't answer that question. <laughs> I, I, it's for me, England. England are just a bit too good. Um, and I, again, you know, probably if they score an early one, Cody, they could they could score three or four. The I don't think that. I think look, I think Eng- England will win this. I don't see. I agree with you in the sense I don't see a route to Colombia winning this game. That look, they've got every chance to do it. I think the way if there is a route that I can see 
it comes with a tactical shift. I think they do need to, maybe instead of this kind of free-flowing attacking football that they try to play, even against the bigger nations, they may need to, and look, this may not be popular with the Colombian population, but they're probably going to have to sit back and do a lot more. Yeah, no, um, exactly. exactly. But, but when when has this team, in, in the time that they've been able to excel and become everyone's second favourite team, when have they sat back, Cody? Exactly. How did they beat, and how did they I, beat I don't see them going into this mentality with that, this game with that mentality, and that's mm. probably going to be their downfall as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, look, I, mean, I don't know if I'd say you three could or four. Say, you could say that England have had their own issues defensively, sort of with the structure of losing Leah Williamson and having to sort of mould that around, and it's part of the reason they lost to Australia and all this that's been going on in the English camp. Fair enough, fair enough. But, you know, like, Colombia will, Colombia will need that goal to come sooner rather than later. I just, I can't, like, for the life of me, I can't see a situation where their flair actually bamboozles England to the point where they're able to nag what is like a goal that basically sets the tempo and now England's on the back foot and Colombia are advancing forward. Like, yeah, I can't, I just can't see that. Even if Colombia do score, I can't see it being a case of now Colombia are in control of the game and you see the stats graphic come up and it's like, wow, England are really up against it. I'm aware of what happened against Nigeria and I'm aware that England can be exposed in a certain way, but it's all defensive. It's it's defensive. It's for a side like a Nigeria who can who can play that defensive game and shut that down. It's not what Colombia do, and that that that's a massive problem. Yeah, look, like I said though, I don't think it's going to be a three or four. I think look, Colombia do it'll be an entertaining game. I think there'll be a few goals in it. I wouldn't be surprised if Colombia are able to, you know, find a way past this England side. Both sides are going to leave gaps open at the back that the other team can take advantage of. Mm. I think you know maybe they're maybe England are capable of scoring three or four, but if they do. I think Colombia will get one or two themselves. I'm going to go with a 3-1, actually. Two goals okay. in it. Still England enough there to show that they are dominating and routinely winning this game. But I'm not saying that... I don't think they wipe the floor with Colombia by any means. That's probably the only disagreement I can have with what you said. Look, that's actually... That's basically it. That's everything covered Um, for the what's happened in the last week. For everyone that's listened today, thank you so much, all you beautiful people. We all do appreciate it. Be sure to follow Front Page Football on our socials. That is Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter at Front PG Football, Instagram, TikTok, uh, Threads, I believe. I can't remember if we're on that yet. Uh, thank you so much. I've been Cody Ojeda. This has been Matt Olson. Obviously, your favorite duo, particularly when it comes to women's football. Matt, do you have any final remarks you want to make? Yeah, make this weekend a great one. Whether you look wherever you are, get out to a live side. Make sure you're supporting the Matildas and support the whole World Cup. There's three other fabulous games that, that are going on. We've spoken about them in detail. There's something exciting there to watch. If you're in Sydney, make sure you're getting out to that England-Columbia game as well, if you can possibly get tickets, because it is so bloody hard. But if you do have one, get out there, enjoy it. Enjoy this World Cup for what it is. Keep back in the Matildas. I've been Cody Ojeda. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you next week.